From KYW News Radio, all news and all that matters to you, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Welcome to this very special one-hour edition of Flashpoint. For the very first time, we recorded the show in front of a live studio audience here at the Broadcast Center. We discuss women who work, politics, and policies that impact women. Let's dig in. According to the Pew Center, 256 women have qualified for the November ballot in the U.S. House and Senate. 197 Democrats and 59 Republican candidates Eight women are running for Congress in Pennsylvania, and for the very first time ever, two women, Republican Pearl Kim and Democrat Mary Gay Scallon, will go head-to-head for Pennsylvania's fifth congressional seat. But this is a pink wave, y'all. Historically, Pennsylvania has done poorly when it comes to women in political leadership roles and most recently ranked 38th among the states when it comes to representation of women in elected office. In the state legislature, only 14% of the Senate and about 20% of the House are women. But when women make up 51% of the population, my question is why? Why is Pennsylvania lagging behind other states and what can voters do to level the playing field? With us to discuss this flashpoint is the Honorable Christina Tartaglione. She's a Democratic senator representing Pennsylvania's second senatorial district. Welcome. We also have Jasmine Sessoms. She's founder of She Can Win. And yes, you can applaud for our audience. For our panelists, we have Dr. Dana Brown. She is executive director of the Pennsylvania Center for Women and Politics. And finally, we have Christine Flower. She's an attorney, columnist, and radio host at our sister station, WPHT. Welcome to Flashpoint, everybody. Thank you for being here. Dana, Dr. Brown, I want to start with you because PCWP has done extensive research on women and political leadership. I want you to lay the groundwork for us in Pennsylvania and give us some context. Why does the Commonwealth rank so low? Unfortunately, we rank so low that when you take a look at all of the local elected officials in addition to the state legislature, we are ranked 49th in the nation. So 39th, 38th when it comes to the state legislature, yes, but even worse if we actually um, collect all the data across the Commonwealth. And so I often am asked why, right? What yeah. is this? What is the puzzle with Pennsylvania in terms of women in politics? And so I'll tick off just a couple of things. Um, we have some institutional barriers in Pennsylvania uh, that are different um, than some other states. And one institutional challenge, um, frankly, is our party system. We know from the political science research that there is a male selection bias mm-hmm. when it comes to endorsed candidates. Okay, so that's just what the poli-sci literature is saying. Um, So we have that institutional challenge. And we also have um, that party system built by men for men hundreds of years ago. Um, When you're thinking about um, identifying future candidates and recruitment, they're looking at traditionally masculine qualities, um, which leads to that male selection bias and endorsements. But that also then leads to um, a lack of turnover with candidates. Uh, We don't really have a number of open seats because we have these seats that uh, we know incumbents win at a rate of 95% plus. So that's another institutional challenge is just the lack of open seat opportunities for any newcomer, but particularly for women, where we know women candidates do particularly well in those open seats. Um, And then lastly, I'll get to the individual thing. We know that women do not run, but frankly, there are some good reasons, right? There are those institutional challenges that I just 
laid out that would deter any newcomer. But what we're trying to do at the Pennsylvania Center for Women in Politics is to train those leadership yes. skills, because leadership can be learned. And yeah. so we're trying to encourage women uh, to be political entrepreneurs and run. And that's part of what we're going to be discussing today. And so, Senator, you were only the fifth woman elected to the state senate here in Pennsylvania. And how does what you're dealing with now compare to what you were dealing with in 1994 when you joined the Senate? I just want to say I am tied for seniority in the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've seen a Senate turnover 100% in my 24 years there. And when I first got there, the average age was 72, and they were white males. Wow. So I know knew they either were going to love me like a granddaughter or I had a lot of work to do. And uh, I actually wore pants on the Senate floor, and one of the oldest uh, senators wanted me admonished and taken off the floor because I wasn't dressed properly. I didn't have a skirt on. Oh, wow. So, yeah. I, there was some barriers there. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we only have seven women uh, in the Senate out of 50, but we have w a lot of women running, so hopefully we're going to pick up some seats. Um, it is different now um, where it's easier to cross party lines yeah. because there's more women on the other side. Mm -hmm and we can make our alliances. When I got there, you know, there was only three actually senators there. Yeah. So there, yeah. you know. But when you talk about alliances with seven people, you know, I mean, I feel like how powerful can you, that's why we're here. And so Jasmine, I want you to jump in here because you actually have worked on a number of campaigns and realized one thing that made you do some research. So not only are there no women, in the Senate in our house. There are no black women in the Senate at all. There you go. So we don't even have a black woman. So where my focus has now been to turn to women of color and encouraging them to run, I have worked on a number of campaigns. I think I'm at 62. Wow. It's a lot. I do about 11 at a time. So what I found when I first started, I only worked on men's campaigns. For the first six years of my career, I only worked on men's campaigns, and a woman who was very qualified to, to run for judge asked me to come and work on her campaign. I'm a fundraiser by trade, and I raise a lot of money. And I could not raise this, this very qualified black woman money. No one would give her money. I wanted to know why, so I asked. I started asking women that were in office, why does no one run? They were like, are you kidding me? Who would want to do this? They're, this is the old boys game. They lock you out. The unions don't care. Our individual donors, my parents can't gift me $10,000 to start. There are some inherent barriers when women run, but especially women of color. Yeah, and I want, Christine, I want you to jump in here because you've been a very outspoken voice, um, especially when in, in the conservative movement. And I want, how Republican women faring here? Because when I laid out the numbers, a lot of the women running are on the Democratic team. Yeah, you know, I, I wanted to thank um, Her Honor, Senator Tartaglione, for talking mm -hmm. about the alliances across yes. party boundaries because there there seems to be there is a tendency or at least until recently there was a tendency to presume that if you were a female um, you were progressive you were mm -hmm. a, a woman and 
that's problematic because there are women who can bring a great, women, we bring a great deal to the table, regardless of what our own personal politics and perspectives are. Um, but when you, you basically sort of put us into, you know, compartmentalize us and, and, and say, well, if you're a female, you're going to have a progressive voice, that's actually self-defeating because yeah. there are going to be men out there who are going to say, well, I can't have an alliance with a woman who's going to be a progressive if I'm a conservative. So in, to get back to your original question yeah. about mm -hmm. Republican women, um, dirty little secret is I've only been a Republican for a year and a half. I was Ooh. a Democrat for 37, <laughs> 37 years. I was a registered Democrat. And um, I rarely <laughs> voted along party lines. Mm -hmm. I crossed party lines so many times. So for me, I don't see it as as a party issue. I see it as an, uh, you know, spot issues. And I do think it's really, and I'm very grateful that you invited me to speak on this yes. panel as well, because I do think it's important to get it out there that um, conservative women have the same concerns as all women, and there's a kinship there that shouldn't just be defined by your specific politics, your specific, you know, issues. Yeah, but the, the, and I agree. I mean, that's it. Should some of the gender issues that we talk about sh do they cross party lines? Is it political? And please, ladies, jump in. Yes, I think so. You know, we all care about the same things. Healthcare is a big issue. Yeah, and a woman's right to choose is a big issue. Yeah, it is a big issue mm -hmm. because I don't want anybody telling me what I can do with my body. Yeah, and. You know, child daycare, you name it, the CHIP program. There's all things in Pennsylvania that, that, that we do. You know, my mother was the first woman elected citywide in 1975. Yeah. She was the only woman for years. Yeah. And she's been very outspoken, but she had to be because there were all men around her. Yeah. And yeah. I had a great teacher. Yeah, I see. And, and so why do you think... Dana, you 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 you're our numbers person over here. Why do you think the the Republican, the number of Republican women running is so different from the number of Democratic women? I will answer that, but I want to just uh, share with everyone that in terms of legislation, yeah. we actually do know from the political science research that women do work across party lines at a much greater um, extent than our male colleagues do. We, can we clap I, for that? That would make we, the world a much better place. Women. Women, uh, so about a year and a half ago, my center, we did a study just focusing on the Pennsylvania General Assembly, and basically it was, the bottom line is, if you want to get a bill passed, have a woman legislator, Republican woman legislator, because the Republicans are, wow. are in power, um, because they have a much higher bill passage rate than than their male colleagues even. So um, I just want to share, there actually is a lot of research. So the few women in the, in the legislature are getting a lot more done, is that what you're saying? Absolutely, they absolutely are very effective. Um, and a little dirty secret about women in politics too is that women are nationally anyway, we bring more money back to our districts um, than our male colleagues as well. So there's a lot of good reasons to support women uh, in politics and women in public leadership at large, but again, it's a lot of social science research to support that. Um, we've known now for a yeah. couple of decades that we do have a gender gap uh, in terms of, of politics. We have a gender gap where both in party identification, women 
choose yeah. the Democratic Party. Women generally prefer the Democratic nominee for president for the past few decades. Uh, just when Hillary Clinton ran, uh, we had a historic gender gap of 14 points uh, between men and women in this country. And, and even with Katie McGinty yeah. down the ballot uh, it, for the U.S. Senate, we saw a really large gender gap there just within the state of Pennsylvania. And um, frankly, most of those reasons uh, you point to are why this is is public policy. Um, frankly, the Democratic Party, we know, uh, supports some you know, social safety net uh, Think public policies that particularly women, women and children oftentimes are a primary um, benefactor for. And women are aware of that. And so That's they then, then choose the Democratic Party and choose a Democratic uh, president. And so I want to kind of switch gears here a little bit. What gets, so knowing that women can work across aisles, we heard that, from, uh, and, and what would get a woman to run then? Because if women are more effective in leadership, women are more willing to be bipartisan and get more things done, how can we get more women to step forward? And what compels a woman to say, you know what, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring? Well, one, you have to ask. A woman typically has to be asked nine times before they're running. So to nine every time. Nine say times. Say that again, nine, nine times. times. So who wants to run for office in here? Will you run for office in here? All right, that's twice. Before I get off this panel, I'm asking two more times to run for office. Literally, we have to ask women to run. We have to support women. I go broke donating to women. If you pull down a campaign finance report, you will see my name up and down. Donate to women. Senator, am I right or am I wrong? There you go. Donate to women. Volunteer on a campaign. Yeah. We need that kind of support built in because we are literally, and especially women of color, we are doing it sometimes by ourselves. Out the pocket. Out yeah. the pocket. We need support. So women aren't running because there aren't those supports there. But if more women would support other women, I feel like women would run. Yes. And when, when women run, they win. And let me ask this quick follow-up, and maybe, Christine, you can jump in here because... Um, did the Me Too movement, did this women's march, did any of this change the ideas and, and motivate more women to say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step forward? Well, at a, at a practical level, I know that the Me Too movement had an impact in my district, in the 5th Congressional District, because mm -hmm. Pat Meehan was, is, was yeah. my mm -hmm. representative, and we will now have a woman, regardless whether it's Pearl Kim or Mary yes. Gay Scanlon. And the reason that we will have a woman is because uh, Pat Meehan decide, decided not to run again because of uh, a tangential type of a Me Too issue. So at a, a basic level, yes, it's had an impact in, in my local politics. Um, I've been fairly outspoken about my approach to hashtag Me Too, mm -hmm. and um, I don't think it's any secret if anybody's read anything at all that I've ever written about it, that um, I have a big problem with the way it has morphed uh, into um, what I think is a, is, a, is it's a representation of victimhood as opposed to an amplification of women's voices. And I also mm. happen to have a nephew who's 10 years old who I spend a lot of time with, and I feel very nervous about some of the ramifications of the Me Too movement that I've seen happening. And so for, for me personally, I, I don't think it's been a positive development. But yes, it has. Uh, we are going to have a female in the 5th Congressional District because of Me Too. Yeah, yeah. Any comment, any yeah. response I to know that? the Senate has worked very hard to change their policy after the Me Too movement. Before you had to um, 
go to your supervisor. Well, they're all men. And if you're being sexually harassed by your boss, how are you going to make the claim? So now we've changed our system, and there are a number of ways in which you can, can go. And you get to choose. You know, you can go to chief clerk. You can go through, you know, HR. This way, yeah, I thought it was kind of ridiculous because if someone's sexually harassing you, you yeah. can't report them. And there's, and there's a lot of shifts that have happened. Yeah. So has the, you know, I mean, our gender issues, are you hearing that, Dana? Are you hearing that, Jasmine? Is that motivating women to step forward? Well, I mean, I'll just say really quickly, not just me too, but um, frankly, Donald Trump's presidency, right? If you go back to his inauguration, you know, the day after there was the Women's March across not just the country, but also picked up globally. And women were really taken to the streets literally um, in response to um, even potentially Donald Trump's own actions and words against women. And I can say in this state, right, we are at a historic high in terms of the number of women running. We have 136 women running yes. on the ballot in November. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is, that is unprecedented for this, this commonwealth. And so it is this, at this intersection of Donald Trump and Me Too um, that we see these, you know, these women saying, that's it, leadership lives in me, right? This is what leadership looks yes. like and sounds like and walks like, and I am going to run, and they're doing it. And one of the things I realize is women are not a monolith. All women don't agree on everything. We saw that in the Women's March. Um, You know, all different types of women working together. Um, And so we we realized that. And because this is Flashpoint, y'all, didn't I tell you, you know, 22 minutes would go really, really fast? (laughs) So in 30 seconds or less, I want y'all's final thought. I want you to describe the power of women in office. Could the pink wave grow to become a pink tsunami? And what would that do to America? if that became what it is. I think women approach problems differently than men. We see a problem, I have to do this, I have to do this, and then we'll solve it. And I think men, at least in the Senate, they'll say, <laughs> here's, who I have to, here's who I have to help, so I will do this, this, and this. That is a big difference. Jasmine? For, you know, I could go on and on about the Me Too movement, but I won't. I'll spare you for my 30 seconds. To be very honest, women have been the backbone of politics forever. I've been going with my Nana, who is 96 years old since I was two, to go and vote. We have been making this movement. They just put a name to it. They just called it the Pink Wave or hashtag Me Too or the Women's March. But we've been doing the job. And now women are saying, I'm tired of sitting in the background. I'm tired of volunteering. Now I'm going to get a seat at the table. Um, Because if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. All right, there you go. All right, all right. Dana. Um, So I kind of caution folks with the language in terms of pink wave, blue wave, because one, it almost seems like as if it's passive, as if it's going to happen. And if people want it to happen, you have to make it happen. It's an active kind of thing. Um, And it's different than 1992 in terms of the year of the woman. Um, Yes, Yes. we are coming off of the Kavanaugh hearing, similar to Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas in that way. But in 1992, we had a nationwide redistricting effort, right, from reapportionment. We don't have that right now. In Pennsylvania, we do congressionally. We're unique, but not nationally. So unfortunately, I think uh, while there's a great uh, amount of enthusiasm, I just want to caution folks uh, that we don't have the structures in place that we did in 1992. Yeah. Just let that out there. And Christine, yeah. final word. 
Um, I just think that it's wonderful that women are motivated to go out, um, speak out. Uh, they don't feel that they need to sit in the back as, as Jasmine and, and the senator were talking about and just sort of being the handmaidens. And I did not use that term, you know, for the, the <laughs> pun not intended. Um, but the fact that they're, they're owning their own voices, yes. regardless of what those voices are saying, I happen to be a pro-life woman, and I'm supporting pro-life candidates who happen to be females. But I'm just glad that there are people out there who look like me um, who are getting their messages out, and I think it's a wonderful phenomenon. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. And this, we're about to open it up to Q&A. We're about to open it up to Q&A. Uh, if you have question cards, um, Brianna is collecting them and she will ask the questions and you can use this microphone here, Brianna, on the podium. So uh, you can pass your questions on over. She's picking them up right now. Thank you all for, for your questions. All right. And you can use the hashtag Flashpoint Live. Please tweet. Our uh, handle is Flashpoint Show. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter and we'll retweet you, all right? All right, Bree, come on up and just take the questions we have. Come on up and, and read your questions um, right here. Okay, we have a question. Any thoughts on sexism in academia? Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Dana's like, ooh. Um, is this being taped? <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, uh, unfortunately, academia is, you know, like a lot of other workplaces, and sexism is a part of the institution. Um, I earned my PhD at Rutgers, uh, just over the state line there, and if any of you are, have been paying attention in the last couple of months, but NJ.com, there was a, a pretty long, long-form article about um, my own political science department at Rutgers University and um, sexual harassment, sexism in the workplace, uh, pay disparities of female male faculty within my own department. So I lived it, I, you know, that's something yeah. that is, is very real and it's unfortunate and thanks I think to the Me Too movement, a lot of students, undergraduates, graduate students, uh, do feel a little bit more supported going up against these large institutions but frankly, it's, it's still a real challenge yeah. uh, institutionally in academia. Yes. Next question. Next Thank question. You do you think less women get hired due to children? How, do, how, how does having a family impact women's abilities to, to lead? Well, I'm a mom. I have two children. I have two girls, a two-year-old and a four-year-old. I don't have a regular job, so I can't necessarily say how it works in the workplace, but it is very hard. Um, sometimes when I'm out doing panels or speaking or hosting an event, someone will say, well, where's your children? They don't say that to men. It is mm. difficult to balance both being a mom and having a career. You know, you got to block that kind of stuff out. You have to know that you can't fall into the mom guilt. And I don't know if anybody else up here is a, is a mama, but, you know, we fall into these mom guilts of, oh, I really should be with my child. But to be very honest, I'm making a better place for Jay and Jay's to live, work, and play. So that's important to me. Yes. Can I, can I jump in yes. and say how jump important in, yeah. it is what, what Jasmine said? I think when you get out there, uh, and I'm, I'm not a mother, I'm an aunt, and I have Me two too. black labs and some lizards. <laughs> and, but I, 
to be a role model, to show them, mm -hmm. your, your boys and your girls, that you can get out there and you can, you can have that voice, I think it's the best thing that you can possibly do. And what um, Senator Tartaglione was saying as well, uh, women, and, and this, you know, this may sound sexist, but women really do, I think, have a fundamental, elemental understanding of what we need to do for the welfare of children. And I was just really quickly, I was really happy today, I sent an email to a colleague and it bounced back saying he will be out of the office for the next month on paternity leave. And yes. I thought, and, that, and, that and a woman must forward. have decided yeah. that he needed to be out on maternity leave, so <laughs> paternity leave. Next question. <laughs> well, someone wants to know, why have three of you not run? <laughs> the senator's like, well, I'm they're not talking one. to me, yes. I mean, has anyone met me? Like, they, my temperament is, is in four. Did anybody ask you? Oh, yes. A billion times, and my answer is no. I'm a queen maker. I don't want to sit in that seat. I can be more influential behind the scenes. Heard that. Um, I'll real quickly say I do believe it's everyone's civic duty to actually consider it, and at some point I probably will, and I hope everyone in this room does too. All right. Any comment? She, uh, you no comment on that, Chris? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> one more question. Okay. Well, this one is directed to Jasmine. Um, what is your organization breakdown of employees uh, gender-wise, and how are you creating open-mindedness in young people? That is a heavy question. Okay. So I am very intentional when I, I have four people that work with me. They are all African-American women. I'm gonna tell you why they're all African-American women. And it's not that we are discriminatory or anything else. I am an operative by trade. So an operative is somebody that works on campaigns. Um, I am a fundraiser. I am pretty much the only African-American woman fundraiser in our good, good, good uh, city of Philadelphia. I know that opportunities don't always come to African-American women to work on campaigns because they can't afford it. They can't afford to make maybe six or seven dollars. I pay well. So that is why I have been very intentional about hiring for African-American women. How do I keep open-mindedness? One of my employees is a Republican. I'm nonpartisan. I work on Republican campaigns, independent Green Party, and Democratic. So um, we are beyond open-minded. Yeah. One of my employees is, uh, is a lesbian. I try to find all sorts of different people because we work on all sorts of campaigns. But I will tell you, they all are African-American women, and that is very intentional. It just goes to show the diversity within um, the different classes. So I want to say thank you to our panel. We had the Honorable Christina Tartaglione. Thank you very much. Thank you to Jasmine Sessoms. Thank you to Dr. Dana Brown. And finally, thank you to Christine Flowers for appearing on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Thank you, Jerry. Congratulations. Thank you. We'll be right back with the second half of the show. Thanks for listening. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program, Organ Donors Save Lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. This is the second half of a very special one-hour edition of Flashpoint. For the very first time, we recorded the show in front of a live studio audience here at the KYW Broadcast Center. We discussed women who work, politics, and policies that impact women. Let's dig in to part two. 
Women are running for office in record numbers, but in corporate America, they're losing ground. The number of women CEOs at Fortune 500 companies fell by 25% this year, dipping to 24 from an all-time high of 32 in 2017. And last week, the Forum for Executive Women issued its leadership report showing that progress is crawling at a very slow pace. For example, the number of women on executive boards has gone up just 1%, and the percentage of women at the top earner ranks in corporate America dropped a full percentage point. The good news is women are faring well when it comes to owning their own businesses with women starting businesses at a clip that's two and a half times the national average. So why are women finding more success on their own than in corporate America? And what can be done to level the playing field? With us to discuss this flashpoint is Rue Landau, Executive Director of the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations. We have Amal Bass, a staff attorney at the Women's Law Project. We have Farah Jimenez, President and CEO of the Philadelphia Education Fund. And last but not least, we have Councilwoman Brondell Reynolds-Brown. She's an at-large member of Philadelphia City Council. Welcome to Flashpoint and our first live audience. How y'all feeling? All right. So we heard earlier um, that women are stepping up and they're running for elected office. Uh, what's the biggest difference between women taking leadership in politics and women becoming leaders in business? And Ru, I'll throw that out to you. Okay. There's not that much of a difference. In fact, uh, there's you know women run for office and it's a campaign and it's a short period of time. And then they get the job, and then it's work. So I think it's kind of the same in both. I think that women uh, face the same barriers. They face inequality, uh, sexism, bias, sexual harassment. It goes across the board. And it doesn't matter if it's in a corporation, if it's in a small mom-and-pop shop, or if it's running for office or an elective office. We've got a lot of work to do, uh, a lot of barriers to bring down, and unfortunately, all of these things still exist. Yeah, the only difference, uh, voters. Voters are deciding, right? right? And then in the corporate America, it's, I don't know, like the, you have to, uh, there, there's infrastructure. <laughs> but we talk about the corporate infrastructure, Pharaoh. What policies, I mean, Rue mentioned all the barriers. What, when you look at the corporate infrastructure, what policies do you see that hinder women's success, and are there policies that support it as well? So it's interesting. Um, if anyone's ever done a turnaround of any organization, they understand there's two really fundamental elements to any corporation. There are policies and there are culture. And policies are easier to change, and there have been a lot of gains in that department. So there are policies that, when made more gender neutral, like family leave, parental leave, caretaker leave, um, they're made available to men and women for the things that matter historically to women about taking care of their family and their kids or being home with new babies, um, those have been able to pass. It's the cultural shifts that are much harder. And so things like the Me Too movement are attempts to create new kind of cultural dynamics um, in the workplace. And I think that's the place where there's attempts increasingly to try and just change the way that we think about what does work need to look like to accommodate the complexity of women's lives. We're doing it in conversations around millennials all the time. I so know. What millennial, is millennial, millennial. We right. We talk time. about how do we have to make the workplace different, more fun, more flexible, um, collaborative. We need to elevate that conversation for women. Yeah. And, and Amal, when Anita Hill spoke to the Senate during confirmation hearings for Clarence Thomas, there were fewer laws, I think, protecting women in the workplace. Um, yet now we see the Me Too movement, you know, uh, and a lot has pretty much remained the same. 
where's the gap that you think needs to be filled? And Ru, please jump in there as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, we've actually had the laws on the books and, you know, re related to sexual harassment for a long time. Yeah. Um, the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, published its first guidelines on sexual harassment actually in 1980. Mm -hmm. But the events that happened to um, Professor Hill were happening to her in that same, that very agency that was tasked with enforcing those laws. And so that really shows that um, what we have on paper, the rights we have on paper are not necessarily a reality. Mm -hmm. And Professor Hill really highlighted that fact and spoke publicly about something that people were not speaking about publicly, bringing attention to it. And the Me Too movement is doing that yet again and showing that we have a lot of gaps in the law. There are a lot of people who are not covered by our, our federal, state, and local laws, though our local laws, and I am looking at Rue, tend to be, at least in Philadelphia, more protective than our state and local laws. And, you know, some people that aren't protected, um, unpaid interns, um, independent contractors, agricultural workers, domestic workers, these are all people who are falling through the cracks. And depending on the size of the employer, the employer might not be covered at all. Yeah. So we, we do have a package of bills pending in the Pennsylvania General Assembly to try to fill the gaps, but that package has stalled. Wow. Yeah, yeah. The great news is, in Philadelphia, we do have strong laws. And the Philadelphia Commission on Human Relations, we enforce the city's fair practices ordinance, where we cover people and protect them from discrimination in over 16 categories. And many of those categories aren't covered by the state and aren't covered by the feds. So we pay, protect people on sexual orientation, gender identity, uh, domestic violence and sexual violence victim status, uh, a host of areas that are not covered by other areas of law. And we cover employers with one or more employee because we want to have the widest, strongest laws we possibly can to cover as many people. I agree with, uh, you know, Farah as well. This is, some of it is all about culture, right? You can have the laws on the books. You have two things. Yes. One, you got to follow the law and you've got to create a culture in your place of work, in your place of employment, where everybody is equal, everybody is encouraged yes. to progress, that you're breaking down barriers, that you're making it a welcoming place. Yes. And uh, then you also have to have entities like yes. the commission that will enforce the laws when somebody breaks it. Because without that... You don't yeah. have anything. Yeah. And I want to say that going to what Rue was saying and, and to kind of piggyback that on that and, and to mention the statistics, because I know, um, Councilwoman, you've been big on women in business. Yeah. Um, I see you a lot uh, at a lot of those types of functions. Women are starting businesses at records pace. And what is being done to ensure the success of these businesses? Because if you move them out of the culture of those other corporate entities and you put them in there, how, do, how are they faring? What, my question always is, and what role can government play yes. to change the paradigm or the culture of a circumstance and move the needle? So that, that's where I look always when I've come upon a circumstance that's, that's uh, a, a, um, it, it gnaws at my gut because we have not made any progress. Mm -hmm. So when you speak to the issue of businesses, what role can government play in ensuring that women not only start businesses, but thrive and survive and thrive mm -hmm. in their businesses, and government actually does have a role. So let's, I would take a step back first, and I like to look at what the boards of organizations look, look like, like yeah. that come before city council who want to do business with Philadelphia City Council. Because what I've learned is that if you don't ask the question about and what does your, your organization look mm -hmm. like, then uh, you get surprises. The clearest example was November 2016 when a major developer wanted to come before city council and do business down by the airport. We want your business. We want you to build. That's jobs for families. But we also need to know that you 
understand that we want you to do business in a city that is 51% women yes. and a majority minority city. Yeah. So now they have to ask the question, answer the question, and what does your board look like? Ooh, and ooh. so what do you think this board looked like of this organization? There were no women and no people of color. Well, there you and go. so if you don't believe that philosophically, how can you then say you want to do business in the city of Philadelphia? Government has a role. That's right. That's right. And so, I, I mean, can we clap for that? Yeah. Just asking questions. A lot of times we don't ask those questions. Um, and so, you know, Farah, I want to ask you, because you work with women getting back in the workplace. We hear, and, and, and what um, the councilwoman said, I mean, I, I mentioned minor statistics, only a 1% bump on those corporate boards, but you worked a lot with women, and that's how I initially met you, worked with women trying to get back in the workplace. What are some of the issues that women are dealing with? So before I, read, uh, led the Philadelphia, before I began leading the Philadelphia Education Fund, I ran a homeless services organization, yeah. um, working with several hundred women experiencing homelessness, 100% um, of them being um, young mothers, uh, only I think 1% being married mothers. So the rest were single. And uh, one of the stark realities is that when you're um, challenged with both raising a family, you have a limited education, almost none of our uh, residents had even a GED, the ability to get back into the workplace is really challenging. And so a lot of the work that we did in the Center for Employment and Training was about setting guardrails for future success for the families and for the mothers. Um, one was getting sure they got a GED high school diploma and ideally some post-secondary because mm -hmm. your ability to earn increases exponentially with that high school diploma as much as 37%. And so if you don't have one, your earning potential is always going to be a lot less. Two, making sure that they had the familial or other kinds of external infrastructures for childcare. Yes, that's a big the issue. The workforce yeah. is not flexible. If you cannot show up reliably and consistently, I'm sorry, it doesn't really matter what your situation is. The employer mm -hmm. is motivated by the need to generate a certain amount of revenue, and that requires things of it, their employees. And so we had to be able to support families and being able to get those additional uh, guardrails. Um, so those were really, the, I think, the most fundamental elements. And I would say the third is, depending on how um, the family environment you're raised in, if you aren't surrounded by people who have had to work on a regular basis, you may not have workplace competencies either, which are about the ability to accept feedback, to respond, not react. So we did a lot of work in developing those competencies as well. I will say this other thing. For some women, it is really important that they're at home. It doesn't yes. matter what their income is. Some of them caring for their children before they go to work is really important. So what we often would encourage our mothers to do is maybe a full-time job is not right for you right now, yeah. but if you can stay in the workforce in the form of volunteering, an unpaid internship, you're going to continue to build the necessary credentials so that when you're finally able to return to the workforce, you're not starting at that minimum wage job. And you're You've got to, those yeah. relationships and workplace competencies and experiences that'll set you up for Because women success. do, a lot of times we do have seasons, right, in our lives. And so even if you know, you do everything right, you stay back, you stay in the workforce in some way, we still face some form of discrimination. And so um, there are 
all sorts of issues part of playing the game in the workforce. And Amal and Rue, can you talk about that? I mean, we have, Rue mentioned the barriers earlier, but these women, we're coming back into the workforce. We want to move up. We want our businesses to be successful. Sure. And I actually first want to say that for those women coming back in the workforce, that you're advising to, you know, volunteer yes. and, you know, to, to keep one foot in. It's really important. Our anti-discrimination laws should cover them and protect them. And right now, in most cases, it does not. Um, so that's really important for that. Um, and with anti-discrimination laws, uh, assuming it does actually protect you, um, it, that's a big part about making the game fair for everybody. Um, where our workplaces have historically been, you know, in most places it's called at-will employment, where most workers don't have a contract and your employer can terminate you for no reason at all. And what the anti-discrimination laws are there to do, it's there to say, you know what, you have to treat these employees in a certain way. There's a, it's a floor. And that's a very important thing. It clarifies what the rules of the game are, how employees should be treated. Um, and I think that's good for everybody. It's good for employers to know what they need to do. So I think that's good for everyone. Yeah, I know that when women, especially children, get involved, women are nervous about having children at a job because you think that if I, if I get pregnant, if I have a baby, then I'm going to get passed over and then I'm going to get skipped even though you've been one of the best employees or, or something like that. I, I can speak to that in a big, 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 yes. big, big way. As a candidate running in 1999 with a three-year-old on my hip, I had a campaign manager who demanded that I do septa stops every morning. I'm going to do that after I drop off my daughter at childcare because I'm going to spend 30 minutes with her and give the city 12 years of my life. So childcare is a real barrier, mm -hmm. and we all should know that child, the, the issue of childcare hits every sector that you can think of, including the jury system. I mean, right now, if you're called to serve a jury mm -hmm. and you have children, the system does not have a way to make sure that your children are in a safe, secure place while you honor your civic duty. Mm -hmm. And so Montgomery County has a practice where they actually have court childcare. And just last week, I Go introduced figure. a measure for the city of Philadelphia to institute. We're going to have to have hearings. But we need to have child care for those who want to honor their civic duty, or else you end up with juries that do not look like Philadelphia. Can we? Because y'all know. If y'all got daycare for the babies, more women will be on juries. And so I want to talk about wage equity. I got to switch gears here. Because we've been talking about wage equity for how long? Too long. A long Too time, long. And, I, and I know that we had an issue in Philadelphia with a court case. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and Rue, can you speak to that court case? Can you, I mean, what was the outcome there? I know you got some approved language <laughs> that we can say sure. about this court this case. Is, um, you know, the city council, thank you, passed a, this great wage equity law that says that if you've been, that uh, it, when you're being hired, your employer cannot use your past wages uh, to help set your current wages for the job you're about to get. Great law, right? And Rue, and what can, would that do? Can I honor Please. and salute Councilman Bill Greenlee, yes. who introduced that measure with, with me serving as a co-sponsor? Because it's important to be cognizant of what voices on council here. speak for those values that matter to you. Absolutely. Yeah. So Thank you so much for that. Greenlee. It's a great law. It makes sense for women, uh, for people of color, people with disabilities, uh, the LGBT community throughout the city, uh, everyone who's been historically underpaid for so long, 
you know, you, you finally get in your foot in the door, you're finally landing that job, you don't want people to use your past wages to set your salary for your current job. You've got skills. You've got... Uh, That's why you left that job. Right. You've got you skills. You've money. got experience. And also, you should be able to set uh, a parameter of, of the job that you're hiring for without, without even knowing who is going to fill it. So uh, the city... Uh, has been sued by the Chamber of Commerce. So we are currently stalled at enforcing the law. Uh, we hope there will be a resolution soon. But this just shows, like, once again, Philadelphia being on the cutting edge of uh, great laws that we are working on to support everybody that we possibly can. But it's, it's groundbreaking. It is absolutely groundbreaking. Because te- technically, I mean, it's quiet. When you work at a company, for example, you don't know. I, I had an issue at a law firm that I was at. I found out that someone was making we were on the same team, the male on the team, same amount of experience, making a significant right. more uh, a higher salary than sure. me. And you find this out randomly. You, don't, you have no way of knowing this. And so, I mean, because the, the wage gap is, is serious. Real. The yeah. wage gap is real. We start off short change. I mean, the reality is that women have to work for four months from January to April before we catch up with our male counterparts. It's, it's not a hate factor, it's the reality. Mm-hmm. And further, the analogy I like to, to use is that when I started city council, uh, uh, women, when my daughter was three years old, women made 77 cents to a dollar. Yeah. Okay? She's going to have to be 75 years old mm-hmm. before we are at a place where it's a dollar to a dollar. Mm-hmm. And it's only going up two cents in the last 18 years. Mm-hmm. So it takes enlightened Yeah. Uh, leaders in position of leadership and responsibility, A, who care and recognize the inequity, and then B, are willing to take the tough stances and pass legislation that is going to level the playing field. Because we all win when women are doing better and taking care of their families. And Farrah, I want to ask you to jump in here. Is this you know, is this a political issue? Because do all women across party lines agree that wage equity is important? I think you won't find anybody, no matter what their party line is, that would disagree that um, an individual who's doing similar work mm-hmm. should receive similar pay, regardless of gender or any other criteria. Uh, I think where it becomes political is in the solution. Mm. So what is the way that um, a Democrat might respond to that versus how a Republican m- might respond? Um, and therein lies the debate. Uh, the hope is, as you heard in the earlier panel, that women are much more willing to work across party lines so um, instead of them being firebombs that are thrown to divide us, one would hope that as more women get elected, they'll find areas of mutual agreement where the topic can be elevated um, and uh, common ground can be found. One of the things I always like to point out, though, um, in the conversation about women and pay is that uh, being that I run an education nonprofit, it's important to share that uh, women are disproportionately represented now in post-secondary um, education. 56, in fact, there, was, there are several headlines now, and I think The Atlantic ran an article recently about why aren't men going to college. So 50% of uh, the colleges are filled 50% of the student population colleges is are female. Yeah. So women are disproportionately represented in universities, disproportionately represented um, in uh, graduate programs, and therefore have the potential to earn much more. What challenges us in the earnings 
is decisions we make post the education. A lot of time women, my mom's a doctor, will choose medical careers that don't put as much demands on them in terms of managing their family life. So they may choose dermatology, radiology, not obstetrics, not orthopedic, not emergency medicine. They may choose um, uh, to take time off to raise children. That means they're delayed in terms of their ability to earn because the pace of your increase is based on how long you're how in the seat. And so the instead of experiences and relationships, women are probably less likely to build the kinds of relationships and networks in the workplace yeah. that help elevate yeah. them. It is that reason that there's the pay disparity. And hey, so and I please, think- Please, y'all can jump in here. Right. This, is, this is Flashpoint, so, jump in. I see heads shaking right. and nodding and fingers well, moving. While, jump while in. It's, while it's certainly true that you know, pay disparity is, uh, you know, many factors contribute to it. There's been a lot of research out there that shows that there is, when we control for all of those factors, mm -hmm. still an unexplained gap. And that gap is between men and women, that gap is between people of color and white men, that gap is between women of color and white women. And that unexplained gap, the most likely um, answer for it the, you know, is discrimination. So that is clearly still a part of it, even though it, there are many factors that contribute. Yeah, it's just a statistic that we've typically used, 70 cents on, 70 cents on dollar, is, is with all those variables. Yeah. It, it, the margin is much less. I I personally don't want to put this on women, that women are choosing certain things. I mean, there are, there's no doubt there's a culture in places of work. I mean, I've, I've heard stories from, you know, emergency room doctors down to, you know, uh, somebody who's working at a national chain, working two jobs to put food on the table. Women are really hardworking. They're going to do whatever they can to make it happen. And I don't think that we can stop for a second to say that women are making the choices that are, uh, are, that are keeping them behind. We have to make more opportunities, open more doors, uh, be, you know, have more leadership programs, mentor more women to be on boards, to, uh, to learn some of the skills that we need to learn. And I, can, I don't know many women who are going to say, no, I'm not going to take up that opportunity. I don't want to advance myself. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to work harder. So I've just got to tell you, I mean, I just think yeah, we, this, is, yeah. this is the culture change that we're talking about that everybody needs to make sure that uh, they're opening doors on the way in and also that the, the climate and the culture yeah. in the place of, of business is also equal for everyone. And because this is Flashpoint, <laughs> that's a lot. They were getting hot. Y'all were getting hot. I saw it. I saw it. People perking up. Y'all were getting hot. But because this is Flashpoint, we do have to wrap this up. Oh, <laughs> so in 30 seconds or less, let's talk about the roadmap here for this pink wave and women rising up the ranks at work. Let's talk about it from a legal, governmental, municipal, political perspective. Each of y'all can pick one. 30 seconds or less, let's wrap this up. We'll start with you, Rue, end with the councilwoman okay. over here. Uh, there's all the municipalities and the states across this country just have to pass laws that benefit women that are, that are, that level the playing field, that give uh, women and all sorts of people opportunities so that we can have true equality. And then they need to be enforced. And then we also need to change the culture too. We're not going to get anywhere unless we do those three things. So there's, we have great laws in the books and we're happy to share them with anybody who needs them. I'm all. Right. Um, so time and time again, I hear from women who call me who have suffered some sort of discrimination at work, um, and they think the law is better than it actually is, that it, they think it will protect them. Um, they might be an unpaid intern, and it doesn't actually protect them, for example. And we really need the laws on the books to reflect what people need and 
we really need them to just have the opportunities to actually rise in the ranks at work. That right now they're being pushed out. As soon as they get pregnant, they're getting pushed out of the workforce. And we need laws that protect them from that. All right. My Mara. whole career has been about empowering individuals and empowering women in particular. And so I'm going to focus on the fact that one thing women can do is start to stop looking for mentors and start looking for sponsors. My entire career, I have had men sponsor me. What's the difference? A mentor assists and listens and coaches. A sponsor stands in front of you and positions you and places you in places of power and importance. And so what you want, women, is if you're looking to gain yourself, is to look for sponsors individuals, men and women, who are going to put you in those seats, watch out for you, and give you those opportunities. Last so we word. should put that in capital letters, underscore with exclamation points. Because <laughs> <laughs> I agree 2,000%. I'm thankful that I'm uniquely positioned in government to make a difference to better serve people's lives. And I was inspired to get involved because when I sat in Harrisburg, Senator Tina Tortaglione, there were 50 state senators, two were African American, and two were women. And I learned very, very early on, if, if you're not at the table, then you're on the menu. On the and menu. if you're on the menu, the conversation is not going to be in your best interest. Mm -hmm. So I have been inspired by that experience 20 years ago, which is why we put in place sexual harassment training, mandatory sexual harassment training mm -hmm. for city employees. That's why we have in place now yeah. the Mayor's Commission mm -hmm. for Women. That's why we have in place board composition, which is the law. Mm -hmm. As long as I'm there, then I'll continue to pass laws that are going to better serve and right. elevate women so that we can have some sense of equity, not just for us, but for our children. All right. Can we give our panel a round of applause? Now it's Q&A. Q&A. Rihanna, there are cards. Hopefully, did you collect? Could you please hold your cards up? And you, thank you for tweeting. My phone has been going off. The hashtag, <laughs> again, is Flashpoint Live. You can follow us at Flashpoint show. My handle is Cherry Greg, my name, and we'll give everybody here a chance to give their handles as well. We've been tagging everybody in their tweets. And so Brianna's going to collect those cards and come on up. Um, if somebody on Twitter has, I know people are watching on the live stream. Thank you for all those folks out there who have tuned in. It could be two people. Thank you. All right. <laughs> so Brianna Bonds is going to read those questions. Go right ahead. Regarding pay equity, can we discuss the inequity within the women's workforce? African American and Latinas make significantly less per dollar. That's a fact. Yes. That's absolutely a fact. I, the, the numbers tend to change, but if it's a dollar for, for uh, uh, non-African American women, it's 79 cents for African American women and 69 cents for Latino women, which is why passage, uh, not passage, but um, approval of the pay equity bill will begin to, to uh, level the playing field. It's, it's a fact, and I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, always seeing the jars half full, but it's going to be a mighty long time before we see equity in the way that we would like. The pay equity bill is intended for that purpose. Anybody else want to comment on that before we go to the next question? I just think it's... It's just outrageous, and I always think if, if our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers were here right now to say, like, hey, guess what? I make 80 cents on the dollar to a man or for a, a, a Latino woman or African-American woman even less, like, what on earth would they say? Really? Still? It's outrageous. Yeah. Right. Next question. <laughs> 
we have the laws and are working to provide support to abide them. However, what can we do in our community and in education, specifically teaching the young, to create a community culture and where inappropriate behavior is not tolerated? Did y'all, somebody, yeah, can so you read that, try to, read that again? Yeah, so. Um, my, I can't read my own handwriting, basically, so I'm not blaming nobody Basically, what can we do in our community and teaching the young to create a community culture where inappropriate behavior is not tolerated? I, I would change the now. It's not what can we do, it's what can you do. Mm. Like, what are you doing in the corner of the world that you occupy? Yeah. State Senator, former State Senator Roxanne Jones said that in your own time, in your own space, with God's grace, you can make a difference. So we live on blocks, and we still, there's still a sense of neighborhood uh, in our city. Are you active in your church? Are you active with an organization? There are a gazillion issues that involve young people where you can make a small difference. Every single night, there are 1,500 children sleeping in homeless shelters who can't sleep in their own bed. So yeah. it's not about the we. It's about what am I doing to make a difference in the corner of the world that I occupy. That's right. Yeah. Anybody? Yeah. And I, I'd still also say, I mean, education is key to all this. We do have to just keep getting out, getting the word out, uh, educating people about the laws, um, and also just teaching uh, people. We also have a community relations division where we bring people together across differences and teach them uh, conflict resolution and respect. A culture shift is very important, and education is just a huge vehicle for trying to get that to happen and um, to contribute to it. We really need to teach everyone that every person needs to be treated with dignity and respect. And if that were the case, then we wouldn't even need these anti-discrimination laws. Yeah. You've got to respect yourself, too. I've got to put that yeah. out there. Can you I add something, Sherry? Yourself. So yes, one of the please. things that was really um, very challenging when I was running um, uh, the social service agency was the reality that... Uh, People during the holiday times would send us gifts for Christmas, and they were always for women and for little girls. Wow. Yeah. They would just assume there weren't little boys. And so there were little boys who would reside in us, and I would say to our team, here are little boys being raised in an estrogen-enriched family environment, in an estrogen-enriched social service agency, going to estrogen-filled houses of worship, being educated in estrogen-filled schools. Yeah. What are we doing with these boys? Yeah. Where are the models for our fathers? I think it's just as important for women to be advocates for developing strong <laughs> and articulate and powerful and yeah. self-respecting men. Yeah, that's true. And we have time for one last question. Do we have one more? Yes. So can you comment on how sick time and fair scheduling help low-income women who need to work for their families? Yeah. That's a big deal. Um, because yeah. I know so, having sick time has been a big issue in Philadelphia. Oh, abs absolutely. Um, you know, and, and in Philadelphia, we do have paid sick days, and the state General Assembly is trying to take that away from Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there, I think a big lesson in this, and as Rue said in her 30 seconds, is we really need to have our local governments and municipalities to have the power to pass laws that people need. Mm -hmm. And paid sick days was something that Philadelphia did and really should be everywhere in the state. Um, flexible work schedules, you know, that at-will employment environment that I talked about earlier um, means that your employer can dictate pretty much everything about your day. Yeah. And you have a lot of things to balance in your life. Um, and you need to work 
more, you need to, a lot of times you're being forced to work part-time when you don't want to work part-time, or you have to have a doctor's appointment. These, we need to have flexibility in our workplaces, absolutely. And there, there is a, a bill pending in city council to try to make that happen. Wonderful. Can we give our panel a round of applause? And you don't stay right here for a second. I want to say thank you to Rulandau, thank you to Amal Bass, thank you to Farah Jimenez, and thank you to Councilwoman Blondell Reynolds-Brown for being on our second panel, you know, Women in the Workplace. That's it for our first Flashpoint Live. Really happy about this. And I'm so happy that all of you could be here at the KYW News Radio Broadcast Center. You can follow us on Twitter. Y'all know our handle. Y'all want to say it with me? Flashpoint Show. Yes. The hashtag was Flashpoint Live. You can also follow me at Terry Gregg. You can subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast. We have exclusive content. And if you ask a question, your question will be available there. Um, you can also use the Radio.com app, the Apple Podcast app, or whatever platform you use get your podcast um and if you have an issue that makes you hot under the collar that's our tagline let us know and we'll walk you through the flames as hillary clinton once said women are the largest untapped reservoir in the world and i say not if but if we all work together we can change that and we can tap this reservoir can we say that again we will tap this reservoir so i'm your host Cherry greg and um thank you so much for being here